Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Uh, this is your host, Mocheza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Matthew Clayton about a fascinating book he published with uh, New York University Press called Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War. Dr. Matthew Clayton is professor of history at the University of Houston and the author of The Battle of Negroford, The Rise and Fall of a Fugitive Slave Community. Uh, Matthew, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me, Maury. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Uh, before we start talking about the book, uh, could you please briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us about your field of expertise, how you became interested in history, and particularly the history of slavery and resistance, and the idea of the book, how the book came about? Okay, sure. Yeah, I'm a professor of history at the uh, University of Houston in Houston, Texas. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've been interested in U.S. history. I grew up in Baltimore, which has an incredible history with Fort McHenry and the Civil War, but also Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. So living there as a young kid, it's hard to escape that history. So I've always been fascinated with slavery. Uh, as I got older, slave resistance became a real passion of mine. I don't, I had, you know, as I was in graduate school, entered graduate school, I thought that uh, historians still had not given slaves and enslaved people their due regarding uh, they're both passive and active resistance to slavery, especially violent slave resistance, revolutionary slave resistance. I still think it's just it's an undertold story in the part of American and Atlantic history. So this book came about when I was in graduate school. I encountered what we would call a fugitive slave rebellion in Rockville, Maryland in 1845, and it occurred over the 4th of July weekend. And while there is no documentation of the motives of the escape, although we know that these 75 roughly slaves who had escaped were trying to get to the north and freedom, they were armed and they ended up fighting. Uh, several died, most were captured and resold into slavery or returned to their owners. Uh, but abolitionists who learned of this escape attempt, they made a big deal about it in the abolitionist press and, and some writers at least one in particular referred to these escaped slaves as the uh, disciples of the Declaration, uh, because they, the abolitionists assumed that these enslaved people knew about the 4th of July, they knew about the Declaration, and thus this must have inspired them. And that certainly got the, you know, the ball rolling um, in my mind about what impact did the Declaration, did the 4th of July have on enslaved people and their allies. And the more I did research over the years, it was not just the 4th of July or the Declaration. It was the U.S. Capitol building. It was the language, you know, the, the, the war cry of Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. And I have found that over the years, enslaved people were took great inspiration from all these symbols of freedom. And, and the same with their, their anti-slavery allies. So that's sort of the origin of the book. And uh, the, the book actually... There were a lot of the interesting facts and surprising facts for me in the book. So broadly speaking, you you talk about different symbols of freedom, such as Fourth of July or American flag, and how it's been maybe appropriated uh, or used by both the proponents and opponents of slavery. Um, but let's broadly talk about 
the American flag and and then also I'll ask you later on about the 4th of July. How did the proponents of slavery appropriate these icons? Yeah, you know, so the, the book covers an extended antebellum period. So from the aftermath of the War of 1812 through the outbreak of the Civil War. So we're talking almost a half a century. And anyone who studies this period knows that following the Battle of New Orleans, uh, the American victory, if you will, over the British in the War of 1812, we enter an era of good feelings. It was an era of supranationalism. It's an era where you know, national holidays are established, Washington's birthday among them. The American flag is standardized by Congress for the first time. It, you know, it's been 30 years and America did not have a standardized flag. So you see at this time, Americans are coming into their own. They are really embracing this national identity. They have finally actually you know, freed themselves from British tyranny. It's taken a long time. And at the same time, slavery is expanding. The, intern, the internal slave trade or domestic slave trade is expanding. And what's really rather disturbing is how slave owners and slave supporters, or I'm sorry, slave owners supporters, um, slave owners, allies, uh, Southern white politicians, uh, Southern white officials, they begin this disturbing practice of, you know, hanging American flags outside of slave pens or slave prisons. Uh, coffles of enslaved people are marched across the South with, you know, one of the slaves being forced to, to carry an American flag as they walk. Uh, slave coffles are being marched in front of the U.S. Capitol. And so all the while, it's like these pro-slavery advocates are actively uh, promoting not only slavery, but they're trying to make this declaration, if you will, that slavery is a national phenomenon, that it's synonymous with the stars and stripes. And what my book shows is how not just enslaved people, but their allies, they, they push back against this and they fight to reclaim those symbols as legitimate symbols of freedom, not slavery. And uh, the 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 Fourth of July was also a very interesting case in your book as well. Yeah, I find the Fourth of July just you know it's oh, it's still just an amazing you know holiday. It sort mm -hmm. of people gather and celebrate, but you could definitely argue that you know that the holiday has kind of lost its way, and today just see the Fourth of July as a opportunity to drink alcohol, yeah. overeat. <laughs> Uh, fireworks and a lot of people are injured in these, you know, firework explosions. And what you see in the early 19th century is the Fourth is initially synonymous with the Declaration of Independence, right? The Fourth of July is a celebration of national independence, which is really marked by, you know, symbolically by the the, the Declaration of 1776 on the Fourth of July. And Northerners and Southerners initially they see the Fourth similarly. It's a way. It's a day to commemorate and celebrate. American independence. But increasingly, you find that white Southerners start to sort of twist and turn and shape the 4th of July into less of a freedom celebration uh, and more of just what it is today, this sort of this, this uh, bacchanalia, this celebration of food and drink. And especially on Southern plantations, uh, enslaved people were given an abundance and overabundance of food on the 4th of July. Oftentimes, they were given drink on occasion. There were foot races that were held. There were raffles that were held in lotteries. And it was just sort of a day, you know, it's a great day off of work. It was a distraction, but it becomes depoliticized is the bottom line. Mm. And at the same time, Northerners are increasingly arguing that the Declaration of Independence should be America's founding document, you know, even more than the Constitution, because of the idea quote unquote, that all men are created equal. 
Um, the 4th of July for a lot of Northerners becomes a, a reinvigorated celebration of the ideology of freedom and equality. And for white Southerners, you see the opposite happen. And the 4th of July, like I said, becomes very depoliticized and it becomes a day of just, you know, not working, a day of food and drink, but has very little to do with the Declaration of Independence. Certainly not the idea that all men are created equal. And um, in your book, you talk about many different characters. There was um, this person, James Dickey, and this story that, that happened in 1822 when he saw a group of slaves carrying an American flag. Can you talk about that story, please? Yeah, this is a real touchstone movement of American abolitionism. And, it's, you know, Britain had a great abolition movement, but you just don't see anything like this because it's across the Atlantic. Most British slaves are enslaved in you know the West Indies. It's very different in the United States where slavery is everywhere originally, and then it is exclusively a Southern institution, but it is always in the nation's capital, right? It'll be in Washington, D.C. through the Civil War, and that just becomes very pivotal. But, you know, regarding the flag, you know, James Dickey is a Southern abolitionist who moves north because he feels like an outcast in the South in the 18-teens. And he's a preacher, and one day he's just, you know, minding his business in rural Kentucky, and he hears this marching band basically uh, processing through the woods, and he assumes it's some sort of you know, grand celebration of of you know, maybe the fourth of it wasn't the fourth of July, but he he just he can't quite figure out what is going on. But it sounds like a, a militia band or a martial band. And lo and behold, his curiosity gets the best of him. He goes to see and hear what's happening, and he sees a huge couple of slaves, maybe 50 slaves being marched through the woods. And um, there's a band playing, and then slaves are forced to to play instruments as they march. And at the front of the coffle, as you know, I mentioned earlier, there's a slave carrying this massive American flag. And Dickey is just absolutely enraged by this. He's insulted. He's embarrassed as an American. And what he does is he has abolitionist connections. He's an abolitionist writer. And he writes an account, a very brief account of what he sees. And it very quickly starts to circulate in abolitionist media and print culture. And you know, a decade later, artists, abolitionists and anti-slavery artists, they begin to um, depict what he had seen and described in a series of wood engravings that will soon you know, be publicized all over the North. Uh, they'll be part of the great postal campaign of the 1830s where abolitionists mail more than a million pieces of literature, anti-slavery literature to Southerners and to Northerners as well, but across the country. And this is one of the defining images of slavery and abolition in the antebellum era, this idea of a slave coffle uh, being being marched through the woods. And uh, another story I really liked was um, 12 years or so, the memoir by Solomon Northup, right? It, yes, if I'm yes. pronouncing the name correctly, uh, which I guess they made a movie out of that as well, 12 years as slave. Can you talk about that one, that part of the book as well? Yeah, and you know, so many accounts of all these flags being displayed in front of slave pens and uh, events on the 4th of July, they're, they're second or third hand oftentimes, but Solomon Northrop gives a first-hand description of what it's like to be enslaved in a pen in the nation's capital in the 1830s, 1840s, and he writes about this in his narrative after he you know, eventually serves 13, a slave for 13 years, eventually escapes. But in one of the his many powerful moments in his book, but one that I find very moving is where he talks about how he 
when he realizes what has happened, he was drugged, he wakes up, he's beaten mercilessly, and he comes to the realization that he is going to be enslaved for maybe the rest of his life. And it's just, it's a moment we can't even begin to imagine the horror. Um, and he looks outside the windows of this slave pen in Washington, D.C., and he sees the U.S. Capitol. He sees these American flags of liberty waving high above the, the so-called Temple of Freedom. And he very, you know, poignantly writes that, that, that what kind of nation is this? You know, the hypocrisy um, couldn't be any more profound. And so Northrop, just, he has this penchant for just really, um, you know, getting at your gut. And, and, and for, for abolitionists, you can imagine they read his account. And this is a first person account of just the, the disgrace that was being made of these symbols of freedom. And it really does motivate them to sort of fight, to not only get rid of slavery, obviously, but also to reclaim America's meaning. Is, is this going to be a nation of freedom as it was intended, or is it going to be something much worse, a nation of slavery? Um, you, you earlier, before this question, you talked about that famous um, fam famous picture that was based on James Dickey's, uh, what, what James we could witness. But what, what other sorts of iconography or imagery was used in anti-slavery publications yeah, a lot, of, um, a lot of it. So definitely the American flag. Uh, you see oftentimes uh, the U.S. Capitol. You see in a lot of abolitionist imagery, the um, heading of the William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator. It almost always had an image of the U.S. Capitol in the background and the headmast. And in front of it was usually an enslaved person being whipped or a slave auction, depending on what year of the Liberator. So abolitionists were very fond of using those. I think another... Uh, icon that some people might be surprised about, I find just absolutely fascinating, is the American Eagle. And today, we generally just think of the American Eagle as a symbol of freedom, the way it flies, it's a massive bird. But British abolitionists actually were the first to point out that, the, that an eagle, just in general, is a predatory bird. And so the British were fond of sort of saying that the British lion represented freedom once the British got rid of slavery in its territories in the 1830s. And they pointed to the American eagle as this predatory boar, uh, bird that, you know, um, its prey was African-Americans. And this was something that American abolitionists eventually embraced and visualized, again, in some of their illustrations. So oftentimes in anti-slavery pamphlets, uh, the anti-slavery almanac is a great example of this. They will have this visualization, this image, this illustration of an American eagle attacking an enslaved person. Uh, oftentimes it's a black woman, sometimes with her child. Uh, the talons of the eagle are ripping to tear the woman, you know, into pieces. And so for abolitionists, this is their way of saying, you know, we want this bird, this American symbol to represent freedom. And it is currently, as the British have pointed out, represented something, you know, something wholly terrible and something awful. Um, one of the most interesting parts of the book to me was that sort of contradiction between what American values represented and also how uh, anti-slavery proponents try to use the to base their arguments on American values. Uh, but how did it work? How did they try to sort of um, maybe get 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 around those contradictions? For example, American symbols of universal freedom and exceptionalism, it didn't really apply to to slaves. But they did try to use those arguments. They did try to use Amer icons of American nationalism to uh, s sort of, you know, inspire resistance towards slavery. Can you talk about this part, please? Yeah, and Maury, I got to tell you, I think 
You know, I think it's easy to say, and it's it certainly makes sense to say that these symbols, um, just like freedom, was mm-hmm. never intended to apply to slaves, right? It was never intended to imply, uh, apply to African-descended people. And looking back after, you know, hundreds of years of racism and white, but I got to tell you when, you, when you dive into the primary sources, you just find these enslaved people and these abolitionists that despite... Um, some of the obvious things that the founding fathers said and did, the fact that you know half of them who signed ratified the Constitution were slave owners themselves, these people, they, they did not accept that sort of premise that these ideas of equality and freedom did not look back. And because of the rise of white supremacy, the triumph of racism in, in early American history and much later, that this is the way it was supposed to be. This is the way, the way it was always intended. But words have meaning. And I think it's just fascinating to find how these enslaved people and their allies, they were so stubborn in refusing to accept the idea that those freedoms were limited or that America's ideology was selective. The way they interpreted it, which is the way I choose to interpret it, and the way a lot of people interpret it today, is that idea of freedom and equality, it was supposed to apply to everyone from Mm -hmm. day one. And, you know, so again, certainly many of the founding fathers didn't intend it that way, but that's not the way the message was, was received by large portions of the American population. So if there's anything that really just fascinates me, fascinates me about this whole subject is how, you know, governmental leaders, you know, people who create a nation, the, the people who, you know, write constitutions and declarations of independence, they may have one intention or meaning in their mind, but the way it's interpreted can be something very different. And that's, you know, it's sort of the point of the book, how today we're still fighting over symbols. Um, these symbols still matter. And, and, and certainly enslaved people and their allies in the early 19th century, they, they saw the founding ideals and documents and interpreted in one way. And a lot of white Americans went in a totally different direction. And I think one one great example is Frederick Douglass. His speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July. And you, he, he emphasizes American values there in support of uh, American values in support of anti-slavery. So, uh, what question I have, maybe this, this is even not really... This phenomenon still happens, but when some people stand for truth, stand for justice, they are called traitors. Right. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to can you because you in the book you talk about this famous speech. Uh, it would be great if you could talk about that and also maybe tell us if if at any point Frederick Douglass was also considered a traitor by other abolitionists because he was supporting the Constitution. It was using those values to to dismantle slavery. Yeah, great questions. Um, you know, so Douglas, I actually consider the speech, which many people have long determined it's his greatest speech. I consider it sort of his personal declaration of independence. You know, he's an escaped slave. He gets to Boston. William Lloyd Garrison, sort of a titan of American abolitionism, becomes his mentor. And for years, as you can imagine, Douglas has this sort of complex that he doesn't belong, that maybe he doesn't fit in, that he's not as good and talented as all these other intellectuals who went to Ivy League schools and have been, you know, preaching and they've been lawyers for all these years. And so the first decade or so, Douglas just follows along and sort of intellectually just follows their lead. And Garrison and all the Garrisonians, they were very strong on certain issues. And one of them was that the Constitution was a fiercely pro-slavery document. And as a result, or as such, They denounced the Constitution, and they did not believe in America's political process. They thought that American politics, the American government, was permanently and fundamentally flawed. 
uh, Garrisonians. They actually, by the mid-century, they support disunion and they would ask for the North to separate from the South because of the firm beliefs on a lot of these issues. But Douglas gets around to the point that like, maybe we should still participate in the political process despite America's flaws. He thinks that we should form a political party or two. We should all vote on election day. And he also decides that maybe the constitution has been misread by you know, Garrison and all these other leading abolitionists. And so now it's, it's interesting when I teach the constitution, it's clearly a pro-slavery document. It has all these pro-slavery measures, three-fifths compromise, the closing the Atlantic slave trade, uh, fugitive slave clause, things of that nature. But everyone has to admit that the Constitution does not, the founding fathers intentionally did not put in that document the word slave. They did not permanently legalize slavery. They not, did not in any, way, in any way concretize or make concrete slavery's permanence. So they left a little window is what I'm saying. And Douglas understood this. And he thought, wow, now why did the founders do this? Well, clearly, even if many of them own slaves, they are not only hopeful for the end of slavery, they're, they're, they're leaving the, the tools to get rid of slavery down the road. So the bottom line is 1850, 1851, Douglas changes his mind. And he decides to give this great speech on the 4th of July, and he is going to lay out his you know, the justification for why he now is going to interpret the Constitution a different way as an anti-slavery text, and also why he's going to ask abolitionists to join you know, in fighting against slavery by using the political process. And so to answer your, you know, your other question about treason, the answer is yes, I mean, abolitionists, his best friends, literally, his, almost all of his mentors, actually, they, they kind of... They, they reject him at this point, and they you know, denounce him, they criticize him, and it's, it's very nasty in, in some of the press, and, and it could have been worse, but they're very harsh towards him, and he, he moves to upstate New York almost to escape uh, much of the criticism. Uh, for the next couple of years, he's not invited to abolitionist events, and when he does attend, um, he is literally ignored. He's kind of a pariah in many circles of abolitionism, so by the mid-1850s, Douglas is intellectually his own man. And he is adamant. And he definitely still has some close allies. And they are arguing that the political process is a legitimate process of change and reform. We must do that. But he's also arguing, he's banging the drum for the, that the Constitution is an anti-slavery text. And so it really just shows, you know, number one, the abolitionists weren't always united for obvious reasons. But here is this man, and it's taken so long, but man, he, he is ready now to take his leadership to a whole different level. And he actually actually does that. And by the time of the Civil War, uh, many of those Garrisonians have lost a lot of clout, a lot of power uh, in the movement. And Douglas is as, as influential as any abolitionist in history at that point. And, and speaking of people maybe who are his opponents, uh, can you t tell us who David Walker and Henry Highland Gar Garnet were? And how they approach to anti-slavery differed from that of Frederick Douglass? Yeah, they are African-Americans. Uh, David Walker was born free in the South. He ends up in Boston, Massachusetts and starts to, you know, agitate for anti-slavery. He becomes an abolitionist writer in local newspapers. Uh, Henry Highland Garnett, his family escapes from slavery in Maryland, not far from where Douglas was from, um, but Garnett was just a child when this happens. So he's pretty much raised in the North and he's a free black Northerner for all intents and purposes. 
But by the 1840s, and Walker dies early on, but by the 1840s, the, the, these two men have, have written um, documents. David Walker had published what was called his appeal. Henry Highland Garnett had given this incredible speech in 1843, 1844. It was called like a speech to the slaves. And both of these Black Americans, for all intents and purposes, they call for slave revolution. Um, these are black radicals, and, and we all know that the African Americans sort of led the American abolition movement, and African American abolitionists were typically more radical than their white, you know, brethren um, for different reasons. A lot of them still had family that were enslaved. Many of them had been enslaved, and so for them, this was a zero-sum game. Like slavery had to go; it had to go now. Um, there was no moderation that, that could be tolerated. And so, you know, Douglas comes from the South and he's an adult when he, or almost, he's in his upper teens when he escapes from slavery. And he very quickly becomes sort of a, a very pivotal abolitionist figure. Um, he's sort of the face, as I've said, of the abolition movement by the 1840s. And he is always a little hesitant to call for violence. He's always a little hesitant to call for slave revolt. He's hesitant to advocate for slave revolution. And so there's tension even among African-American abolitionists. But make no mistake about it, by the 1850s, uh, after the Fugitive Slave Act is passed in September of 1850, as abolitionism increasingly becomes violent, and as abolitionists increasingly help slaves escape through violent means, uh, Frederick Douglass starts to join uh, David Walker and Garnett in, these, in pr promoting radical ideas of violent abolitionism. So there's a lot of sort of um, ideas percolating in the movement. And, you know, Douglas embraces some, he disregards others, but certainly the idea of militant or violent abolitionism, which had been in the ether since, you know, David Walker's pamphlet came out in 1829, um, Henry Highland Garnett's speech in the 1840s. But by the 1850s, you know, Douglas, he takes it now full throttle and he, he is going to argue and advocate to get rid of slavery by any means. And uh, so you... you in the, the book is about these symbols that have been appropriated maybe by both opponents and proponents of slavery. But what sorts of icons of American identity were used in unifying this divided nation? Yeah, I would say the, the American Eagle, as I mentioned before, it, mm. you know, the, the abolitionists are really trying to promote it as an actual symbol of freedom, not some predatory pro-slavery bird. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass, I mentioned in the book that when he escapes from slavery, he dresses as an uh, African-American sailor and he borrows a uniform of a black sailor that he knows. And he also borrows the free papers of a black sailor that he knows. And on one of these free papers is uh, an image of an American eagle sort of rubber stamped on the document. And when the he's on a train heading to the north, and when a conductor asks to see his free papers, he shows him this, this document, he points at the eagle, and he says, with this eagle, I can go anywhere, basically on the planet that I want to go. Like, you can't touch me. I'm a free man. Also, very famously, when the Civil War starts, um, and, and he starts becomes one of the great advocates for black soldiers, and he gives this famous quotation where he says, uh, you know, let the black man get an eagle on his button, and I think he says a musket on his hand, in his hands, or a musket on his shoulder. And he says, you know, they, they, they will become Americans. They will die for this country. So for Douglas, this, this eagle means something. And so, so for abolitionists, this, this eagle means a lot of things. So you see a lot in the imagery of the American abolition movement, the, the appropriation of the American eagle to sort of take it back uh, from the pro-slavery forces. So this really does become a unifying uh, force 
uh, definitely regarding the visual images at the time. Uh, maybe a final question is about, I, I've, I've talked to several people about the history of slavery and I always ask them this question, what they think when, when some people mention that on, with all goodwill, they say that, well, slavery is abolished now, let's move on, history is history, let's forget it. Maybe, I'm, I'm not sure, so I'm happy to be corrected, maybe they say that in the spirit of sort of unknowingly denying the fact that still racism still exists. So my, my question is, how do you respond to these comments and how is this book relevant to us? What lessons uh, does it have for us today? Great question. You know, and I, I agree with you. And there's, you know, I think we're, you know, we're so divisive and we're so angry. And, you know, there are people who say we're in a post-racial era. There's people who say, you know, racism is done or it's minimal. And, 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 and we can react in two ways. We can get very upset and just as angry and, and say, you know, you're wrong, you're ignorant, you're racist. And I just I don't find that to be productive. I don't find it to be helpful. And, and honestly, when I talk to people and I hear it from students and when I read things online, I still read newspapers. It's a lot of people who say these things. It comes from a good place. Like they're hopeful. They, they want to live mm. in the United States where slavery is forgotten and the pain of slavery and Jim Crow and all that stuff is gone, but but clearly we're not there. So so my take on it is it's time to sort of okay we need to just acknowledge that that racism is still prevalent. Um, we also need to appreciate that it was you know far worse than most people give it credit. That slavery was far more of a destructive institution than most people acknowledge, and it wasn't just the physical abuse of African descended people. It was the psychological abuse. It was the generational trauma. And it persists long after. But once we acknowledge that, I just think there's one way we get out of this is, is we could use these symbols of freedom, just like the abolitionists tried to do, as sort of something to rally around and to sort of you know, re-emphasize and, and underscore that the United States is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be better. And you know, Frederick Douglass in his speech, Believe it or not, he, he was a former slave, for goodness sakes, and, and he's a great advocate, a zealous advocate of the idea of American exceptionalism. And a lot of people you know, are very critical of American, American exceptionalism today for obvious reasons, me among them, quite frankly. Um, but Douglas is steadfast in his belief that the United States has, and he's writing and talking in the 1850s, that just the unequaled potential as a nation, a land of freedom, equality, and opportunity. And you know, other scholars have used the term aspirational American exceptionalism. And that's what Douglas is talking about. He's not saying America is accomplished, has accomplished American exceptionalism. He's not saying America is not without faults. He's saying America is flawed. And the number one flaw, he argued, was slavery and connected to that was, was the racism. So I think today we can still rally around the idea that America has all of this incredible potential. And we should sort of look at the American flag as a symbol of freedom, the American eagle, the national anthem, um, all the, these great you know, sites around the country that people go to and visit. But we can still acknowledge we haven't reached the, 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 the hilltop yet, not in any way, shape or form. So we still have a ways to go, but it doesn't mean the dream of American exceptionalism should die so easily. And I also think like the book and one thing that just motivated me as I wrote this was there's sort of this there's this tendency today. And it reminds me of sort of just Christianity in American history. And, you know, a lot of everyone is familiar with the term the Christian right today and how Christianity 
in the United States has really been appropriated by the far right. And it has been very much used in recent years, if not decades, to very uh, far right conservative purposes. But people are less familiar with the idea of a Christian left. And when I hear that expression, I think of Martin Luther King. And I, I think of Union soldiers during the Civil War who were with their Bibles in their hands, were going to the battlefield willing to die to free slaves. And so, you know, Christianity, Islam, you know, these religions can be used in certain different ways. And I think the national symbols are the same way. Uh, the flag, the, the emblem, the eagle, it can be appropriated by far right. It can be appropriated by far left. It can be appropriated by people in the middle. So these are highly contested symbols and they can be used for good and they can be used for ill. Um, thank you very much, Matt. But before we end this conversation, I'm curious to know if there is any other book or project you're currently working on. Yeah, there is, and, and it kind of is an outgrowth of this book because I've just, for years now, I've just been <laughs> buried in the archives with, with all these examples of of violent slave resistance, and, and we haven't even talked about like Patrick Henry and his. Mm -hmm. who I didn't mention earlier, but the idea of you know to be an American citizen, you're supposed to adopt this principle: of give me liberty or give me death, right? And, and we see it around the world today: oppressed people fighting, dying. They they just want to be free. And, and freedom ain't free. And so sometimes you have to pay the ultimate price. And so many enslaved people, as they escaped from slavery, as they fought slave catchers, as they lifted up weapons in rebellion, they literally cried out, give me liberty or give me death. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. But as I said, oftentimes they're carrying weapons. And so where I'm headed now, my next research project is, is the role that um, guns and knives and other lethal weapons they played uh, not only in the antebellum South and just American history, but also slave resistance. And so I'm not, you know, very familiar with guns. I've never owned a gun, but it's, it's a fascinating topic. The idea of American gun culture, and a lot of people think that this is a new phenomenon, but I will make it very clear that Americans have been familiar and comfortable with guns for a long time, and so also have been slaves at various times and various places. So it's a real fascinating study that's sort of just getting underway, but I think it's going to be pretty um, cool and interesting stuff when it's all finished. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very, very much uh, for your time to talk about this wonderful about New Books Network. I personally learned a lot from the book, and like I said, I guess throughout the interview, there were a lot of interesting uh, facts that completely surprised me when I was reading the book. So I strongly encourage our listeners to 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 read the book. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love the conversation. Greatly appreciate it.